all here. We're in Isaiah chapter 29 tonight. If you need a Bible, James is up and he's got Bibles in his hand and he'll bring one to your seat so you can follow along with us. Isaiah chapter 29. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin. Father, we thank you again for bringing the lights back on. We thank you, Lord, for the time of worship that we had, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the uh, just the, the giver of light, Lord, and of life. And, uh, Lord, you have blessed us with this building and this place to meet. And, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Father, that as we gather to hear from you, from your word, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, that we would be open to receive all that you have for us, Lord. Help us not to just gain information, but application in our lives as we study your word through uh, your prophet Isaiah, Lord. And so bless our time together, we pray. Uh, bless the kids downstairs, the youth, as they're being taught as well, Lord. And we give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 28 of Isaiah, we saw how God was lamenting over the fact that although there was a small remnant of faithful Jews, the vast majority of them were living in sin and drunkenness. And even the prophets and the priests uh, were, and they made themselves blind and deaf to the word of God. And as a result, we know judgment was coming both to the northern kingdom of Israel and eventually to the southern kingdom of Judah. And so with that, we begin in verse 1 of chapter 29 with, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel the city where David dwelt, and year to year let feasts come around. But there are six woes in chapter 28 through 35. This is the second woe, and it's against Ariel. Now this isn't Ariel from Disney's you know, Little Mermaid. Okay, I know you girls are going, Little Mermaid, is, you know, this isn't who it is there. It's, it's actually uh, because the city of Ariel... Is, is only mentioned some 20, here in, in Isaiah 29, it has led to much confusion over the name itself. There are those who say that the name Ariel means Lion of God, and in this passage, it's used as symbolic of the city of Jerusalem, which I believe that's accurate. But also there are those who say that the name Ariel sounds like a Hebrew term that means hearth of altar. And I think they're both right. Ariel is the city of Jerusalem, the location of the altar of sacrifice. Because verse 2 tells us, look at verse 2. Yet I will distress Ariel. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. Let me read that verse in the New Living Translation. Yet I will bring disaster upon you, and there will be much weeping and sorrow, for Jerusalem will become what her name Ariel means, an altar covered with blood. So we see how that that translates there. Verse 3 says, I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound, and I will raise siege works against you. Siege works means towers or platforms. The idea here is that the fighting and the bloodshed is going to be all around Jerusalem, and it would make the city, the line of God, seem like a giant altar of sacrifice. Now to those living in Jerusalem, verse 1 said, Ariel is the city where David dwelt, and year to year let feasts come around. In other words, year after year, as the feast came around, the Jews, they were observing the feast schedule. They performed all the actions and the traditions required of them. But they were just going through the motions. In fact, the Jews were really bored with it because it no longer had any meaning to them. And God certainly was tired of it because their hearts were far from Him. But look at verse 4. He says, You shall be brought down. You shall speak out of the ground. Your speech shall be low out of the dust. Your voice shall be like a medium out of the ground. And your speech shall whisper out of the dust. See, here the Lord is warning them of the seeds that would come her way by initially by Sennacherib and then uh, the Assyrians, but eventually by the Babylonians where, where many of the Jews would die, essentially sacrificed 
by the Babylonians. You shall be brought down, uh, he says there. Now, eventually, we know that uh, her ultimate destruction was really 70 A.D. in Jerusalem, that the Romans came in, and Jesus spoke about that in, in Luke 19.43, for the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. Jerusalem had been, has been the most besieged city in the world today. I mean, no other city has been conquered and fought over as much as Jerusalem. Even to this day, I mean, there's a battle for Jerusalem. Do we not read about it every day? Jerusalem has many enemies, but, but there's some reassuring words for Jerusalem. Look at verses 5 through 8. He says, Moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones like shaft that passes away. Yet it shall be an instant suddenly. You'll be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. The multitudes of all the nations who fight against Ariel, even all who fight against her in her fortress and distress, it shall be as a dream of a night vision. It shall be even as when a hungry man dreams, and look, he eats, but he awakes, and his soul is still empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and look, he drinks, but he awakes, and indeed he is faint, and his soul still craves. So the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. So through Isaiah, the Lord is saying not only the Assyrians or the Babylonians or those in Rome or, or today the Palestinians or the Muslims, but any nation throughout all the time, you know, they think that they can take, take control of Jerusalem. They're dreaming. You know, you're like a man who dreamed about food all night and ended up eating your pillow. You know, I mean, that's not what he's saying, but you know, you're dreaming all night about you're hungry and you wake up unsatisfied. You're still hungry. Thirsty man who dreamed about drinking water on it, but he drinks it, he wakes up and he's still thirsty. Isaiah says to these nations, you think that you're going to come in, you're going to, you know, take Jerusalem. And it's a pipe dream. It won't happen. You're always going to come up empty. Because it's not yours to take. It belongs to Jesus Christ. It's his city. The city of the great king where he ultimately will rule and reign. Now Isaiah next speaks to the blindness of those in Jerusalem. Look at verses 9 through 12. Pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out in you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I'm not, a, I'm not literate. Here's what this is saying. The people at that time were choosing to be apathetic towards the things of God. They're choosing to stay in the dark towards God, what God was doing. And so because of that, the Lord says, man, you blinded yourselves. You're not listening. You, you know, you're putting your hands over your eyes. The Lord says to Isaiah, you can pause and wonder what I said will happen, but it won't do you any good. You won't understand it. Neither the literate or the illiterate, illiterate will get it. Blind yourselves and be blind. Why? Because... He's saying, your heart's not for me. You're not, your heart's not for my will to be done in your life. In fact, the Lord says they're blind and they lack self-awareness. They can't see their true condition. This is an important truth. If you don't want to understand Scripture, you won't. If you're not interested in, in doing the will of God or knowing the heart of God, the, the Bible will become meaningless to you. Regardless of how educated a person may be or, or, you know, or uneducated, you, you'll find the Word of God dry and boring if you don't desire to, to, to know the Lord and see the Lord. But when you look to the, to the Word of God as it should be read with the idea of, Lord, you're speaking to my heart. What do you have to say to me? Lord, this is talking about me. Lord, how can this change me? 
then the Word of God becomes alive to us as God brings illumination from His Word more and more because we have an open heart to receive it. But to the Jews, a spiritual blindness had set in and the Lord was saying, you're blind to the fact that judgment is coming. I mean, isn't that much the case today? I mean, we as Christians, we look around and we see, man, this world is getting bad. I mean, judgment is coming. But, but the world, man, they just live under the shadow of this great judgment. You just keep going on and on as if nothing's going to happen. They can keep living on in sin. Well, therefore, the, Isaiah goes on, look at verse 13 and 14. Therefore, the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the commandment of men, Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for their wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. The Jews at that point, they were saying all the right things. You know, they would speak honoring words to God, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But in reality, the Lord says it's just lip service. Their hearts, they didn't honor God with the way they lived. They were distant from Him. I think that's a perfect description uh, of empty religion. And, and of many people who even this week, man, they'll go to church, they'll, they'll stand where they're told to stand, they'll, 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 they'll read the responsive reading, they'll sing the songs, and maybe even put money in the offering, but it's all lip service. They're drawing near to God in word only. They have no concept of the reality of God and certainly don't have reverence for Him. They're just practicing that tradition that they've, they've learned by repetition. And I can look back at the, the Catholic religion I grew up in and say that's exactly how I was. In fact, even to this day, I, I got those prayers memorized in my brain. Someone starts it. I mean, the, 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 the math that they do, I know when we're going to kneel and sit down and stand up. And, and I think, man. But here's my point. I don't think it matters if, if it's Catholicism or Lutherans. It could be very, very well be Calvary Chapelites, you know. We can get in that danger of coming in on Sunday morning and singing the worship songs, but yet not really be worshiping the Lord. We can give an offering, but, but not really as an act of worship. Or we can sit through a Bible study and have absolutely no intention of applying you know, to our lives what's being taught. All the while we're praising the Lord, but we're really not praising the Lord. I think any of us could slip into that lethargy, just going through the motions. So we need to ask ourselves continually, you know, why am I doing this? Okay, what purpose do I serve? Am I simply going through the motions? Well, I don't want to go through those motions, you know. See, the Jews, they had lost it. So in order to get them back to where they needed to be, God was going to make things a little bit difficult for them. They were no longer going to be led by the priests going through the motions or teachers giving the, them the traditional sermons. They would be in desperation, crying out to Him in prayer for deliverance. They would truly seek Him uh, for the first time in a long time. You know, trials and tribulations have a way of doing that in our lives, do they not? You know, if, if we're not really walking right with the Lord and God allows a trial to come back, oh man, Lord, help, please. And all of a sudden our focus is, is back on the Lord. Now, I would rather not go through a trial because my heart is not right before the Lord. Uh, but but uh, trials do draw us closer in that way. Look at verse 15. Here's the third woe. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord and their works are in the dark. They say, well, who sees us and who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made save him who made it? He did not make me. Or shall the thing formed save him who formed it? He has no understanding. See, the Jews had been living lives of religious tradition without any understanding of, of, of who or why they were serving. So in the process, they made themselves really out to be God, you know, to know better than God, dictating what God should and shouldn't be able to do. Ever come across people like that? 
well, if God is a God of love, then, then why did God allow this to happen? Or, or I deserve to be happy because, because you know, so, so, you know, God can't say living with my girlfriend is wrong. Or I deserve to be happy and so I need to cheat on my taxes. So, you know, and, and like they, you know, like the Jews, they say, well, God doesn't understand. Or God, you need to do this. Or you need to do that. How foolish. See, Isaiah here uses this illustration again of the potter and the clay. How people can just be like the clay. You know, turning around and saying to the potter, you don't know what you're doing. God doesn't have any understanding. God doesn't know what he's doing. Really? That's pretty ridiculous. You better hope he does. This is the same God who measures the universe together in the palm of his hands. He holds the universe in his hands. He holds everything together. It's the same God who formed every creature on this planet. The same God who, who created the intricacies of the human body. And, and for man to say he doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, it's no wonder in times past that the potter just wanted to smash the clay down and start all over again. You know, I, I think of, of the people of Moses, you know. Remember when Moses would lead, he wanted to get the Ten Commandments and he came back down and Aaron and the people had formed the golden calf and, and the people started worshiping it. And there the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 32, 9, I've seen this people and indeed it is a, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone and my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you of a great nation. In other words, let me get rid of these guys. I'll get a whole new group of people and we'll work with them. I mean, it's a potter going, hey, I can do this if I want. Now, now, you know, if you call Moses pleaded with the Lord and the Lord relented from starting over. But God has a right to do whatever he wants to do because he's God, period. How obnoxiously arrogant and ignorant it is, is, it is to try to tell God what he should and shouldn't be doing. The clay telling the potter what to do. Now we know that often, you know, the, 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 as a potter, God will often break the clay pots in order to start something new and good. And that is verses 17 through 21. Look at verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest? And that day that the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible one is brought to nothing, the scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are cut off, who make a man an offender by word, and lay a snare for him who reprove in the gate, and turn aside the just by empty words. Again, good news Following bad news. In the future, God will restore Israel and the surrounding areas. It's going to be fertile and, and fields and forests. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns in the millennial kingdom, uh, that man, the spiritual blindness and deafness will be a thing of the past. Those who are once afflicted will now be rejoicing. They will know the truth. Look at verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees... His children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. These also who erred in spirit will come to understanding and those who complained will learn doctrine. Basically, he's saying that, that Jacob would be ashamed of the descendants if he could see the way they had fallen away from the Lord. But when the Lord brings them through their trials and brings them through the repentance and, and, and God has re- revealed to them, at that point, his descendants will be overcome with reverence and love for their God. All those who believed false doctrines, who erred in the spirit, it says, were complainers, will finally understand and finally uh, learn from God. Now we come to chapter 30. Some rebellious kids, look at verses 1 through 5. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, 
who take counsel but not of me, and who devise plans but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were at Zoan and his ambassadors came to Hanes. They were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or be help or be help or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. Here in verse 1 is the fourth woe. Basically, the word woe means watch out. You're in big trouble. Whoa, you know. And it's used towards the Jews who God calls his rebellious children. Now here's the problem, and we've looked at this briefly before. The Jews in Jerusalem knew that the Assyrians were conquering up north and figured it was only a matter of time before the Assyrians would come down there to Judah in the south. And, and, And so they had to come up with a plan. But their plan did not involve relying on God. Their plan did not involve repenting to God or even looking to the Lord. I mean, they came up with the plan themselves. And, and now, though the world, in the world's eyes, it was a great plan, but it wasn't God's plan. What was their plan? Well, knowing that it was a matter of time before the Assyrians would be coming against them, they sent some of their ambassadors, some of their princes, down to Egypt with this large caravan of donkeys and camels carrying riches and treasures. And they were going there with the purpose, the intention of, estab- intention of establishing a diplomatic alliance between Judah and Egypt. So God says, woe to you, back in verse 1, who take counsel, but not of me, who devise plans, but not of my spirit. Always amazes me when people go through difficult times, how quickly they are to turn to counselors, and even those who call themselves Christian counselors, but they won't turn to God or to God's word first. Sadly, a lot of those that that go to Christian counselors, those that that claim to be Christian counselors, they're, they're Christians, who, claim, who are counselors, but they're not really counseling from God's word. It's all the counsel of, of this world and the philosophies of man and not of God. And sadly, people walk away from those counseling appointments more confused and messed up than before they started. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Colossians 2.8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of man, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Sir, God is saying, woe to you because you're not seeking me for direction. You're just going to bring more problems upon yourself. And he goes on in saying your trust in Egypt is going to gain you nothing. Look at verses 6 and 7. The burden against the beast of the south through a land of trouble and anguish from which came the lioness and lion, the viper and fiery flying serpent. They will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and the treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore I have called her Rahab Ham Shebeth. The beasts of the south there in verse 6 are the ambassadors, the priests that were coming down to Egypt from Judah with that large caravan of donkeys and camels carrying the riches and the treasures to buy Egypt's help. The Lord says, that's foolishness. That's wasted money. They're not going to help you against the Assyrians. So the Lord even says to Isaiah, I will call Egypt Rahab Ham Shebeth which means Rahab sits idle or Rahab the do-nothing. Rahab is, is a name, but it's also a Hebrew word for pride, and it sometimes uses a title for Egypt. So God is saying, prideful do-nothings. They're not going to do anything for you. Verse 8, he says, Now go, write it before them on tablet, and note it on the scroll, that it may be for a time to come forever and ever. God is telling us, hey, write this down. 
Egypt is not going to help you. Mark my words. What, I, what I'm telling to you. And he said, write this down so that everybody knows that their secret little plan to seek Egypt uh, help had been seen by the Lord down to the last detail and especially the outcome. And, and, and you can't argue with the fact that Scripture with these detailed accounts of God saying that Egypt would not help them had been circulated worldwide before these events ever took place. So, so God was saying here that let the people know that what I prophesied will happen so that when it does, they will see that God alone who knows the future can predict the future with 100% accuracy. I mean, it's, it's for the same reason that, that the Word of God is full of prophecy. Prophecy proves the Word of God is inspired. And the Word of God proves that prophecy is true. That's because only God can speak of the future with absolute certainty. It's not as though somehow God is going out on the limb and, and taking a chance. You know, God lives in the realm of eternity. And he, he can see the future as clearly as... as uh, we see the past. And so he says to Isaiah, write this down so when it comes to pass that, that they'll know that I, the Lord, had predicted it long before. He says, write this down because, verse 9, these are a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get out of, that, get out of the way. Turn aside from the path because the Holy One of Israel caused the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. In other words, he's saying that the Jews have gotten fed up with hearing God's word spoken through the prophets. So they told them, you're not allowed to, to, to you know, see visions anymore. You're not allowed to, to prophesy to us anymore. We don't want, you don't want to hear it. They absolutely refuse to listen. You know, when people are rebellious against God, it's not enough they reject his word, but they also try, try to silence those who are teaching it. You know, and, and, and so the outcome, look at verses 12 to 14. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And he shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare, so there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern. Back in chapter 29, the Lord said, how can you, the clay, tell the potter what to do? And here the Lord says, you're going to be broken into pieces. It's just a response to their rebellion and rejection. Judah will fall. Ultimately, even Jerusalem will be desolate. Look at verse 15 now. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. And quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left as a pole on top of a mountain and a banner on a hill. God has said time and time again, I can save you. I want to save you. All you need to do is repent of your sin and rest in me. But they refuse to trust in him and they continue to make their own plans. Instead of repenting and relying on God, they had their, their exit plan in place. The rich and the influential, you know, if, if judgment was going to come, if the Syrians are going to come, if they're going to be attacked, then we have horses, fast horses, the rich people. And God said, well, you know what? I got faster horses. It's not going to make a difference, you know. God tells them, oh, you'll be riding faster, but I'll make your enemies chase you and I'll make your, sure your horses are riding even faster. You'll be caught. Why? Because you didn't trust in me. Because you didn't look to me for help. And sure enough, when the Assyrians started coming towards Jerusalem, there were those, instead of waiting and looking for the salvation of the Lord, 
they took off on their fast horses thinking they, they would escape. And yet those who left Jerusalem, they were caught. They were put to death while those who stayed were protected. Look at verse 18. Therefore the Lord will, will wait that he may be gracious to you. That is to those who trusted in him. Verse 18. Therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Isn't that a great verse? Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. The Lord is saying, don't fret because of, uh, of, of those who are thinking that they're going to destroy you. We serve a gracious God. Wait on the Lord and just wait. Let him show you how gracious he really is. And those that stuck around and stayed in the place of relying on God, we look at verse 19 through 26. For the people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. You shall, we- you shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left, you will also defile the covering of your images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say to them, Get away. Then he will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground. And the bread of the increase of the earth, it will be fat and plentiful. And that day your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder, which will be winnowed with a shovel and fan. There will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of waters. And the day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall, moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wounds. God has shown Isaiah the day when his people will repent. They will repent of their idolatry. They will will repent because of the rejection of his word. And and they will repent for the rejection of Jesus Christ. They will cry out and he will answer them. On that day he will make himself known and he himself will be their teacher. But before he teaches them, before the day comes, there's going to be some major house cleaning to do. Look at verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and his burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of futility. And there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people causing them to err. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy festival is kept and gladness of heart when one goes with a flute to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel. The Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of his arm with the indignation of his anger and the flame of, his devo- of a devouring fire with scattering tempests and hailstones. For through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down as he strikes with the rod. Even though Judah was looking to Egypt for deliverance from the Assyrians, the Lord says, I will deal with them. I'm going to deal with the Assyrians. Why? Because of their atrocities. He says, he says there he's burning with anger and his burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with, with the sieve of futility. I mean, the, the Assyrians were cruel, heartless people. And the, and the Lord says, they will be beaten down. They will be judged. Judah had no business trusting in Egypt for help against the Assyrians. They should have trusted the Lord instead. And the Lord would take care of the Assyrians. And we know that he did just that. 2 Kings 19.35. I think we looked at this before when, the, when uh, God simply sent an angel of the Lord, one angel, and killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. 
When people woke up, there were 185,000 dead Assyrian soldiers. And yet, as we've seen in times past in the book of Isaiah, there is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment, you know, God wiped out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Yet the far fulfillment is that this Assyrian here could also be a type of the Antichrist. And we're talking about the last days, at the end of the, the, the tribulation period, when the Antichrist will be destroyed by the sword that goes out from the mouth of Christ as he returns. Because Isaiah goes on, look at verse 32 and 33. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, it will be a, with tambourines and harps, and in battles of brandishing he will fight with it. For Tophet was established of old, yes, for the king it is prepared, it's made it deep and large. Its pyre is fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, kindles it. That word Tophet in verse 33 is another name for Gehenna, or the lake of fire. Here we see that Tophet is ordained for the king. What king? Well, the Antichrist. Matthew 25, Jesus said Gehenna is prepared for the devil and his angels. Who is behind the Antichrist? The devil himself. Now, technically, there's there's a difference between hell and Gehenna. We use the words interchangeably, but hell or Hades is simply the place of the dead. It's a temporary place. It wasn't a bad place depending on what side you were on. You know, when Old Testament believers died, they went to the side of Hades called Abraham's bosom, a place also called paradise. But then when an unbeliever died, they went to the side of the place of torment. Both sides are given to us there in Luke 16 in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. But you see, at that time... Believers couldn't go to heaven until the price of sin had been paid for. So following Jesus' death upon the cross, he descended into Hades, into hell, to, to the paradise side, to lead captivity captive, or to escort the saints to heaven. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10 tells us that. So now when a believer dies, he is immediately in, in the presence of the Lord. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. But even now, when an unbeliever dies, he still goes directly to hell, to Hades, to the place of torment. But that's not his final destination. That's only temporary. Revelation 20 tells us that he or she will then be brought before God at the great white throne judgment, where they'll be judged by God and then cast into that place called Gehenna, the final place of the wicked dead. Now, they may cry out for mercy or say they don't deserve to go to Gehenna, but at that point, it's going to be way too late. It was way too late from the moment they died. But just to let them know that, know where, where they're going, God is judged. He's going to open up the books. And they're going to see every time they turn their backs against God uh, and against His gracious offer of forgiveness, they'll see every horrible act of sin they committed. And because they rejected the one who died on the cross and paid the price for this sin, they will have to pay for the penalty themselves, which is, according to Scripture, outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place where the fire never stops and the worm never dies. Listen, Gehenna was made only for the devils and his angels. But if a person insists on refusing the goodness and the grace of God and the mercy of God, if a person really wants to go there, the Lord will not stop him. Let me say, it's really hard to go to hell. You've got to ignore the work of God, the word of God, the love of God. God never intended men to be there. That is why he gave his life, you know, to keep them out of there. Okay, chapter 31, just nine verses, and then we'll close. Come to the fifth row, look at verse 1. What are those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord? Again, he's saying, what are you guys 
who are trusting in your own power and your own ability to help. David put it this way in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Judas should have had that same heart. But even so, the Lord says, I still will deliver you. Look at verses 2 and 3. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and will not call back his words, but will, will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men, and they're, they're not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fail, fall, and he who is helped will fall down. They will all perish together. He's saying, don't trust in Egypt. They're just men. They're not God. The horses are just flesh, not spirit. The greater strength, the greater help is in the Spirit of God. God is able to do the job completely when he stretches out his hand. Verse 4. For thus the Lord has spoken to me as a lion roars and as a young lion over his prey. When a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, he will not be afraid of their voice nor be disturbed by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight for Mount Zion and for its hills. Again, he's saying, just trust in the Lord. Don't trust in the Egyptians. Put your trust in God, for God is going to come down and fight for Zion. God will defend his people. Don't be afraid of what mere men can do. Finally, verse 9, or 5 through 9, uh, he says, Like birds flying about, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will also deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. Return to him against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day, every man shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, sin, which your own hands have made for yourselves. Then Assyria shall fall by a sword not of man, and a sword not of mankind shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall become forced labor. He shall cross over to his stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the banner, says the Lord, who is fire, whose fire is in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. In other words, don't mess with the Lord, and don't mess with his people. I want to close with this. I, I see the atrocity of what happened in Syria this last week, and I'm grieved. And maybe you guys saw this or not. If you don't know, there was a chemical weapons bomb dropped in Syria on Tuesday, causing the death toll as of this afternoon to 72. Many of them were children. One reported stating that haunting images of life as children piled in heaps reflected the magnitude of this attack. I saw one of those pictures, and it just broke my heart. I don't know if you've seen that. It's just these innocent kids that were brutally attacked by these chemical weapons. Innocent women, children, babies attacked. And knowing that they died, this excruciating, horrible death, it breaks my heart. And I'm sure that it breaks your hearts as well. But even more so, I know that it breaks the heart of God. Let me tell you what Jesus said in Matthew 18.10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven there are angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And all I have to say is what we like what we read already. You don't mess around with God's kids. Okay? There's coming a time where God is going to say enough is enough. And I believe that we are almost there. President Trump announced today at his meeting with the King of Jordan that this uh, uh, highness chemical weapons strike in Syria cannot be tolerated. He wanted to say that action was going to be taken swiftly. And he said, quote, it'll be a shorter fight than what people are thinking about. And he promised to, uh, again, to destroy ISIS and protect civilization. I don't know about that, but, but here's what I do know. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. I believe that Jesus is coming back, and when he does, judgment is coming with them. And all I've got to say is watch out. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we need to pray. We need to pray for the families in Syria that are, that are mourning right now. 
Pray for wisdom for our, pre- our president. Pray for protection on those especially in our military that may be putting themselves in harm's way to protect our freedoms and the lives of innocent people. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. And Lord, we see, Lord, that your plan is much better than any plan that man can come up with. And Father, even in the plans that man have made, Lord, you superseded their plans. And because they were your people, Lord, you still protected them from the Assyrians. Lord, you did something that was uh, supernatural. Lord, not of, of armies that came to protect Israel, Lord, but one of your angels. One angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. 185,000 were destroyed. Lord, we know that you have the right plan for our nation, for our world right now. And we pray right now, Lord, for the families in Syria that, that are mourning right now from the loss of their children, loss of their loved ones. Lord, we pray that to the Christians that are there ministering there, that you would uh, protect them first and foremost, Lord, but that you would bring uh, them just uh, the opportunity to share with these families, to bring that comfort. Lord, we hurt with these people that are mourning, Lord. As a church, Lord, we pray for these people. Lord, we pray for wisdom for our president, Lord, that, you would, uh, that he would seek you, Lord, with the direction and the things that we need to do, Lord, in this situation. We pray, Lord, for the protection of our military, for those in, in our families that are serving right now, Lord, we pray for their protection. We pray for their safety, Lord. Father, we look around and we know that your return is near, Lord. We know that judgment is coming. And so, Lord, on one hand, Lord, we rejoice knowing that, that this will soon end. But the other hand, Lord, we grieve because we know there are still those that don't know you, Lord. So we pray for those that, that are lost, that are blind, Lord, refusing to hear or heed your word, Lord. Help us to be a light in their lives so that they would see and understand and come to salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this night, Lord. Thank you for the lights coming back on for us to be able to get in your word tonight. We give you all the praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand